Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real-world data. Welcome to the third episode of Real World Talk with CODA. My name is Emily DiCapua, and I'm today's host. In this episode, we're delighted to welcome CODA confidant and advisor, Jess Federer. Jess serves as a corporate board member and advisor to numerous healthcare and technology companies. Jess, welcome, and thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. I have so much I want to cover with you today. But before we get started, Jess, for our listeners who don't know you yet, can you share a little bit about your professional background and how you came to be a sought-after corporate board member and advisor? Of course. So there are many ways to the board and many ways to become an advisor. Mine was through data and a pretty relentless commitment to public health. So interestingly, when I was an undergrad, I convinced my university which had a great master's in public health program to create a program for undergrads. And of course, was the first student in the program to get a bachelor's of science in public health and have been completely focused and determined to stay in the public health field and use data to improve health for a broader society. So having that relentless focus helps. From there, I, I you know, did what a lot of people do. I <laughs> deferred my graduate studies work to, to start working. And I worked in the government at HHS in ARC, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And it was a pretty interesting time then. There were some exciting developments in health policy happening that, that we're still benefiting and actually working with today. After my time at HHS, I went and did my master's in public health at Yale and from there joined industry. So I went to the dark side and and loved it. I started an industry in regulatory affairs, which I can't recommend enough for anyone interested in drug development. Regulatory affairs gives you an incredible overview of, of the entire life cycle of both innovation and of the product from, from when you're doing the research and working with regulators on the study design all the way through to when you have to, to stop making a product or maybe just continue making a product because it helps an underserved area in one country. So you really get a whole view. From regulatory affairs, I went to market access. So you know, in regulatory, you develop data to show a drug is safe and it works. And then came the field of market access, which is developing data to show that, it, that a drug delivers value, to show that a drug should be paid for. So I moved to Germany and was part of the first team to roll out market access globally in the company. Also happened to be, fortunately, on one of the most successful drug launches of all time. It's still in the top five at that time. So we, we went from you know data to show a drug is safe and his works to data to get it paid for. And then I moved into data working with customers and, and stakeholders and policymakers. And I spent some time in communications and policy. And of course, you know how the end of the story looks. I, I made my way to chief digital officer at Bayer. And that was really about using digital enablers to change a company, transform a company 
and not only improve the existing business models, but also create new ones. And uh, that, that sort of brings us to today, where after spending time as CDO at Bayer, I, I left and came back to the U.S. and have really been privileged to be part of innovation and disruption from the outside of a big company and working with companies like Coda that are making a difference today, now, that is going to fundamentally and sustainably change our entire health system. Incredible. A wonderful trajectory. Let's dig in a little bit. You know, Bayer, of course, is one of the oldest pharmaceutical companies in the world, 160 plus years old, based in Germany. And you were the first chief digital officer. And so how did you, what was your mandate and how did you shape that role? It had never been done at the company before. Can you talk a little bit about that? (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, yeah. So it, it is a hundred and over 150 year old company. And just a word on that. I, I think these large old businesses do not get enough credit um, for really being experts at surviving, at evolving and mm-hmm. sustaining. And we often think of these big old companies as just old, but to be old, you need to have evolved through so many different innovations. And if you think about what innovation was 150 years ago and today, what these big organizations are, are, are masters of evolution. So while it, while it isn't intuitive to think of these big companies as leaders in innovation, they, they truly are mm-hmm. skilled at implementing the processes of embedding innovation in a sustainable way. So they can't evolve as quickly. So they, they don't pick every single innovation and implement it. They, they wait and see which innovations are going to stick around and then they invest in it and they implement it well. And that becomes the foundation of the next innovation. So I was really privileged to work at a company with this incredible legacy of, of innovation and human, animal and plant health. And you're right, the CDO role was new. There were no CDOs um, in the industry. Actually, Takeda, my friend Bruno, was the first CDO in the life sciences industry. I was the, the second at Bayer. And the mandate at the time was really to look at and design how companies were going to do what's commonly called a digital transformation. So it was this term that all the consultants were selling to big companies and and they were investing tons of money in uh, digital development and digital marketing and digital communications and digital supply chain. And so the boards of companies started saying, why are we investing in everything that says digital in front of it? What does that mean? And that led to the evolution of a, of a chief digital officer, which was responsible for, I think, two things. One is not sexy. One is the cleanup, the organization of a very heterogeneous data landscape, because every country and division has developed with technology at a different pace and had different infrastructure and and different data legacy. And so one was really bringing up the processes and the platforms to an integrated place where instead of having buckets of data that you can't combine and you can't connect and you can't make sense of, you actually have an integrated infrastructure, which enables you to use and see what you have. So there's the non-sexy part, which is the, the cleanup, which actually I find fascinating, but we can talk more about that later. And then there's the part that people like to talk about more, which is the the innovation, right? New digital business models, digital therapeutics, how you're using technology to either complement a product that you're developing or create a new product in the case of digital farming or in the case of digital diagnostics or digital therapeutics. So 
it was it was really a privilege to have this new role in such an exciting time. There's always challenges with creating the first of something, but I I think there, there's no greater opportunity than to be able to do something new in a company with such a rich legacy and infrastructure because you have the ability to invest, you have the resources, you have the institutional knowledge. So it it was it was quite a privilege. We'll get to some of the, the the details in terms of data data cleanup and fragmented data. It's something we're quite familiar with at Coda. Your role now as an advisor to multiple companies in the health tech space provides you with a unique vantage point in the in the marketplace, and of course, your experience at Bayer as well. What are some of the most exciting areas of development that you're seeing? in the health tech sector today? Oh, I love this question. (laughs) Um, Well, if I had to boil it down, it comes to interoperability, right? Connecting data, connecting research and care, connecting um, the systems we have so we can get to a learning healthcare system. And a learning healthcare system I define as, as a healthcare system where data is used in a way that we improve with every interaction. So your doctor visit today will help inform my doctor visit tomorrow. And, and this is something that can be done. You know, we, we look at our, our Amazon um, Prime when, you know, they see you like this and your friends like this. So we're going to suggest X, Y, and Z. And, and we have the capability to learn from the data. But for so long, it's been fragmented and siloed. And, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of back in the days where we all used to have so much excitement with the with sort of the first rollout of electronic health records. Mm-hmm. There was always this hope that electronic health records would be this magic intervention that would improve care in the U.S. And and actually, what happened is we ended up investing considerable taxpayer resources into rolling out electronic health records that just led to some very rich proprietary companies that own VHR services, so EHR vendors. And it took a long time till actually, you know, very recently this year, where this administration has been uh, making huge steps to unlock that data again, making uh, it possible for us to sort of realize that vision that we had back when we first started the investment in EHR. So it's this evolution that we're seeing now that's very exciting of data coming together in a way where we can connect data across health systems. We can connect data across, you know, your prescriber, your your records, your prescription data, your uh, smart skill, your wearables, you know, uh, uh, your, your implantables, you know, everything that is collecting data on a person can now be integrated in a way that it's usable. And then more importantly, we now have the technology capabilities to analyze all of that data and make sense of it. Because of course, you gotta find the signal through the noise because nobody has time to go through all that information. So I think that's the the most exciting piece now is just this coming together, this interoperability that we, we didn't have either the political will or the technological capability to do before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember when the same thing when when we went to the electronic health record system and it it basically just became a digital form of exactly what had already existed and there was no there was there that next step didn't didn't come for a good 10 years mm-hmm. 
So if you if we collectively call all of this this data that we're now bringing in and and analyzing in different ways, we call this real world data, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Because this, we're collecting it in the real world. We're not collecting this through clinical trials. So you would say that real world data is here to stay. Absolutely. And not just having a moment. <laughs> no, this is not a moment. Uh, this is this is a pretty fundamental evolution. This progression has been in the works for decades. This is a very meaningful, a very sustainable development with the right that with the right safeguards um, and the right management, this mm-hmm. is going to be transformative, both for research and for care. So let's talk a little bit about the challenges of working with real world data. As you mentioned, data sources are often are complete. They're not often fragmented. Most data sources are fragmented. Mm-hmm. Data sets aren't always complete, especially with health health data. And much of the much of the data in healthcare is is unstructured, right? So it is just completely, you know, taken from doctor's notes and is mm-hmm. not in any usable form as it exists in data lakes. What strategies are you seeing different companies tackle those specific problems? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this is the piece where the digital part of the transformation really comes through. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is about advanced analytics. This is natural language processing to, to really develop and refine those those capabilities to utilize the notes. This is about using analytics to say, this data record was auto-synced twice and it's duplicative. And it's it's using records to say, actually this person has been prescribed this medication for this many years and meets this criteria, but they've never had this diagnostic code put into their record. So you know, we can actually understand their care patterns better and, and what they need. So uh, this, is, this is the new piece. This is the the piece that people invested. This is the piece that we have a lot of hope in. This is the the technology development that will help us make sure that we're not just collecting data to be in useless data lakes that don't help anybody, that we're actually collecting data that can be usable and meaningful in a timely fashion to make a difference. Are there countries where that have universal health systems, so the the data that is collected in these EHRs are not as fragmented as we are here in the U.S. Are there countries who are doing this better than we are? (laughs) Yeah, actually. You know, I like to look at countries where, so of course, I lived in Germany for about a decade, and so I'm familiar with their health system. If you look at countries that have recently built their health systems after their recent wars, so let's just maybe look at Germany and Korea, they've they've developed health systems where there's more integration, there's more data sharing, where, you know, I think it's also a conceptual challenge because in certain countries, you look at data as a public good, like water, like clean water. In the US, we've looked at healthcare data as something that you can own and sell and and monetize. And there's a very different view of data, health data, public health data, data ownership in the US than there is in other countries. And I think we're at a point where that's evolving and, and COVID is is making that very clear where it's not acceptable to have data seen as something that is owned to be traded and sold where this is data that is 
important for the public good. It's important for protecting public well-being. And it is a shared asset like clean air and clean water. And so we're, I, I think we're starting to see some changes in how we view healthcare data in the U.S. that's going to bring us closer to the way healthcare data is seen and viewed and, and actually secured and protected as well. The individual data protection rights are, are stricter in some other countries as well. I'm excited. You mentioned you mentioned COVID. So let's let's turn a little bit to the the elephant in the room here. You and I are not sitting together in New York City as we could be in in normal times, but we are separate because of the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, a follow on uh, to your to your work as as an advisor. What are some of the challenges you're seeing with some of the companies that you're working with, both in terms of how they're reacting to the COVID pandemic and how they're adapting to this, what looks like will be our new normal for at least the next year and a half, 18 months, Mm -hmm. two years? (laughs) We'll see. No, No predictions here. So the COVID epidemic has has done something very important. It has shifted the risk paradigm for healthcare companies. So traditionally, big pharma, big healthcare companies, they're very risk averse. And it was always difficult for disruptors, for for health tech companies, for startups to convince them to take the risk of doing something differently than the way they've always done it, that they know works, that the way they know their regulators accept it, that the way they know their payers like it, the way they know their providers are accustomed to it. And so what we saw in the past were these 12 to 18 month times where startups were just knocking on the door trying to get in. And there are these incredibly long customer acquisition times between startups and, and pharma companies. And now because of COVID, the risk has shifted. It's, it's no longer a bigger risk to do something different because you cannot do what you did before. The bigger risk is not doing something new. And this is incredible for this industry. And so we're seeing companies that used to have to knock on doors for 18 months get deals done in seven days. And so the speed with which the technology is being adopted and integrated and um, put into strategic plans and put into operational studies is, is remarkable. I've never seen it move this fast. So, you know, that's a challenge for these disruptors and startups to, to now be able to, after so long, uh, so many months of waiting to be able to move really, really quickly. And then once you're in the door, you know, once, once you've signed these remarkably fast deals and you're moving forward with a partnership with a big healthcare company or a big care provider or a big institution as a, as a young startup, the challenge is to truly deliver because this, this is the opportunity for digital health to prove what it can do. This is the time to, to over-deliver and, and to, do, to really do what it says on the box, to bring innovations to people that are, that are faster, that are better, that are cheaper, because you're using a virtual approach. And, and we can do that. It is feasible. Uh, so companies need to move fast, and they need to truly deliver on, on what their promise is. And that that speed is certainly evident in in the resources that the the FDA is bringing to bear in terms of in terms of gathering folks from across the country and sharing data and looking to get weekly weekly results. Moving to regulatory, you know, some regulatory issues. You you as you mentioned, you started your your career in regulatory affairs. You are um, a self-described public health nerd. You know, in a lot of 
a lot of regulatory changes in healthcare have come as the result of disaster, of public health disasters. And so I wanted to know what regulatory changes you want to see in the U.S. in response to COVID-19? That's an excellent question. Well, first, it's sad that we only are seeing these big changes when something truly bad happens. But, you know, looking historically, you you have a good point. Uh, I think what is unique about this time is the collaboration and transparency. So we, we, we have the FDA and other regulators bringing together innovators, bringing together technologies, you know, bringing together big companies like Germany did with, with SAP and uh, with T-Mobile to, to create their tracing apps. And, and you're seeing regulators and governments really bring people together. And you're seeing them move at a pace that is just insane. We've never seen regulators move this fast. And, and so that, that leads people to ask, you know, should we have always been moving this fast? Have there been treatments that could have gotten to my family, to my community sooner if we could have always been going at this pace? These are really important questions to ask is, is, is this speed something that can be the new normal, the new status quo? And, and these are questions that truly we don't know the answer to yet. So while I'm hopeful we can go faster, I think there's a, a, a time element that is needed to see how how companies, how, how patients, how physicians, how the entire market and, and industry re- responds to this expedited timeline. Because you're going from, it's a big jump to go from having a decade of data on a product before you bring it to the market, where, you know, as the, as the company, you know every single thing about that product because you've been studying it from every angle for 10 years to now go to an expedited process where it's a, a year, a year and a half, and you, you don't, you really don't have that much experience with the product. And what I think is, is positive and giving us hope that it might be sustainable to move faster is, again, real world data. If we are able to move faster, but we are also able to collect data that is, it's not from a sterile clinical environment, it is actually from a product being used in real patients in a real environment. Um, we are able to connect the data in near real time. We'll be able to identify signals faster and sooner. We'll be able to see what patient populations products work better for. We might be able to have a much more agile, adaptive development. And you know, this is, this is obviously what I'm very excited about with what Coda is doing. You know, the way you're able to use real world data to bring oncology treatments or to bring insights and actionable information to regulators faster. It gives you the opportunity to have a better, faster, cheaper approach to seeing what the data says about a product than what we've always done for the, for the last decades. So it's, it's, it's a very exciting time. Wonderful. We're going to take it back now to where we started, and we're going to dig a little bit more into your career. As I know, our listeners will certainly be interested in learning a little bit more. You've had an extraordinary, you had an extraordinary career progression as a health tech executive. And I'd like to dig a little deeper into the story of that progression. So in terms of how, how deliberate was your, your, your rise to 
to the CDO chair. Was that a goal that you had when you first came to Bear, or when did when did that occur to you that that was something that you wanted to strive for? And then how did you get there? Great question. So of course, CDOs didn't exist then. When when I started working in public health, there was no digital health. We had epidemiology and biostatistics, and and I think often. You don't know what the end of your career development looks like, but you have a direction. And I was, I love that you use the word deliberate. I was very deliberate in mapping out my development inside the company. So my goal was to get to the C-suite of of the company, which is ambitious for a 120,000 person company. And the only way to do that in a, a very process-driven German data-based company is by checking all the boxes and jumping through all the hoops and overperforming. So, you know, if, if someone is looking at how to structure their career development, you know, it, it is if you're in a company that has is, is a more traditional company that has processes and an HR group and has these requirements for your development. So before ec- promotion X, you have to complete this many trainings. You need to demonstrate this much engagement in international programs. You need to check these five boxes. Before your next promotion, you'll probably need to go to a assessment center for a few days and do business cases in front of a bunch of SVPs who are observing you the entire day and, and taking notes. And, you know, so you, you really need to map out very carefully what are what are the requirements for you to progress. And that's sort of on the process side. And then on the content side, what is it that you need to prove and deliver? What are the skills you need to demonstrate that you've mastered? What is the education that you need to go through? So, you know, learning regulatory was new. So how do you basically give yourself a master's in regulatory and learn from everyone you can and find the leaders and read everything available to you and find mentors and and find strong support and, and then do that again in the next field. And what's fascinating about health and data right now is that this field is still growing. So, you know, market access was just starting when I moved into market access. So it's a new field. So you have to understand the entire environment, understand the challenges, understand the stakeholders, understand what good looks like and how to get there and then how to get there repeatedly and what's the process for that. And and that piece of being very thoughtful in your career and being very focused on your individual development and growth, those two elements are are critical if you want to advance, because you can't just complete your degree, go to work, and then hope that you're going to get promoted or someone's going to tap you on the shoulder. More likely, if you want a career trajectory like the one I had, you will not have a life for a decade. You will live your work. But luckily for me, I I love this work because really, what other industry do you get to work in where the things you do day to day can actually, you know, like when I worked on wet AMD, my grandfather had wet AMD, and I saw what it was like for him a person who loved reading and writing and seeing his 60 grandchildren to lose his eyesight. And that's that's incredibly devastating. And to be able to then work on a product which has now helped eliminate blindness from what AMD, it's now not a disease that you go blind from, it's a disease that's treatable and you can keep your vision. You know, being able to do things like that makes it easy to become obsessed with advancements in the field and makes it easy to I wish there were more hours in the day to keep doing more. 
Absolutely. Oh, I think our listeners are going to love that. If we were going to go to a quick, quick lightning round, top three pieces of career advice you've either received or given. Oof. All right. Uh, lightning round. Okay. Pick your boss. Mm-hmm. Job description doesn't matter. Find someone you respect that will have your back, that you can learn from, that you can grow with, and that will push you to, to achieve more. So really pick your boss, not the job. To map up, don't wait for someone to give you an opportunity or to open a door or tap you on the shoulder. It's not going to happen. Make that roadmap for your career. Figure out what hoops you have to jump through, what you have to learn, what credentials you need, and get it done. And three, hold the door open for others. Always hold the door open for others. There were way too many times where I was the only woman or the only non-German in the room. And so it was incredibly important for me to once I got to a certain level, hold that door open and pull people up, hire women, hire people from different backgrounds, hire people that look differently from us and, and bring in that diversity and open the door for, for people to come through and help them advance as well. And, and I think that that's, that's the piece I love the most about working in this space. We're working to improve people's health and their lives. But in doing that, we also get to improve the health and lives of our employees and our colleagues and the people that we work with. Because at the end of the day, the people that you work with, those relationships, that's what matters most, right? What's a podcast that you're listening to right now, other than this one? I love I love Epidemic by Dr. Celine Gounder. Full disclosure, she's become a good friend since I've moved to New York. I'm in awe of the work that she does as an infectious disease doctor treating COVID patients by day explaining the science to people as a CNN analyst on CNN early morning and late at night. And then she also has the time to do this podcast epidemic where you can, she explains concepts that are difficult for people sometimes like, you know, tell me about plasma and antibodies and explain how the disease is being transmitted and explain how this works. And she is a tireless public health servant that is, you know, she's one of my public health heroes. Related, who should we follow? Who's a health tech influencer we should follow on Twitter? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. I follow so many. Actually, I would stick with uh, Celine Gounder right now because we're in the middle of COVID. You want to have a good source of information for all things epidemic related. Celine Gounder and Dr. Peter Hotez out of Baylor University in Texas. He's an incredible physician who is passionate about infectious disease and science and and vaccines. And because of his outspokenness for science and vaccines has actually become a target for, for people who don't agree with that perspective. But he has been tirelessly holding up the banner and explaining science and explaining how the scientific developments and medical developments make it make our world better. So Dr. Sling Gounder and Dr. Peter Hotez. Wonderful. You passed. You passed the lightning round. Good job. (laughs) Jess, I cannot thank you enough for today. You've provided our listeners with wonderful insights and good recommendations, even some career advice. This will be incredibly, incredibly helpful to all who listen to Real World Talk with Coda. I know this was your third meeting of the morning, so I want to thank you for fitting us into your busy schedule. And hopefully I will see you in New York soon. (laughs) 
Oh my goodness, it's been my pleasure. I'm a tremendous fan of the work that the CODA team is doing and your contagious enthusiasm for finding new ways to work with information so, so people can get better treatments. And uh, we need more companies like CODA. We need more people advancing this discussion and this dialogue. So it's, it's truly been a privilege. You can have as much time as you want anytime. It's great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.